Amen. Well, on Sundays, we've been going through Matthew. Um, today, we're going to take a little break from that. We're going to be in James chapter 1. So if you can turn your Bibles to James chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 21. Uh, we've been going through the book of James in our young adults group. Uh, one of my favorite books in the Bible. Uh, growing up, when I was uh, in fifth grade, we started to be homeschooled. And one of the first years that we were homeschooled, I have three little siblings, uh, for our Bible um, school time, we had to memorize the entire book of James in one year. And so me and my little siblings attempted to memorize the book of James. Um, now, the book of James also has a little bit of a negative for me because growing up, I was a very rebellious kid and tend to um, speak when I shouldn't and had an untamable tongue, as James chapter 3 says. So many times in my life, I wrote James chapter 3 verses uh, 1 through 12, over and over and over again on long car rides and in my house and in my room. So that passage is also very familiar to me as well. But the Lord used it, so praise the Lord. But uh, Book of James, super practical book. Um, people call it like the Proverbs of the New Testament. Very simple, coherent thoughts uh, that James is trying to give out here. Um, um, sweet facts um, and, and sweet uh, truths about the word. It's not necessarily a theological book. It does not mean it, has the, it doesn't have theology in it, but its focus is more practical on applying the things that the Christians have learned in this time. The book of James is also believed to be the earliest penned uh, book of the New Testament. It's believed to be around the 40s AD and, uh, 50, or like early 50s, so 15 to 20 years after Christ was crucified on the cross. And so uh, one of the newest books it takes place um, in our timeline of the New Testament in Acts chapter 12. If you can remember in Acts chapter 12, James, the brother of John, is murdered by uh, uh, King Herod. And so there, um, the, the, he sees that it pleased the Jewish people. And so he started persecuting the church greatly. And so what happened was this dispersion came forth. It was the second of this great dispersion that we see. Um, but this great kind of, you know, scattering of God's people. Now, to know why this happened, we have to remember that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says that you're going to go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, you'll go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, is what Jesus' words there in Acts 1, 8 are. And so, as, as he's going up into heaven, he's saying these things, and for many years, the church is just in Jerusalem. And God and Jesus, Jesus through his ministry, through his work, was revealing to the apostles and the Jewish people that the gospel would not only come to fulfill Judaism, but that it would come to the Gentiles. And so for many years, it took a long time for the Jews to get the gospel out to the world. So what does God do? He brings persecution. And so therefore, the Jews are forced to be scattered throughout the world and they start sharing the gospel and people get saved. And so that's how we see the gospel grow a lot, even before Paul became a missionary. And so this is who the people of the, that James is writing to. Now this James is the half-brother of Jesus, most people believe. He is uh, not a believer when uh, Jesus is living his life on earth. It says that he, they mocked him, um, and they, they ridiculed him, and... Uh, you know, I don't blame them. I think I would have a hard time if my brother told me that he was the Christ, you know. In my own pride and self selfishness, I'd be like, that's not possible. No way, you know. And so that was a little 
hard for them to understand, but in uh, 1 Corinthians, he reve- uh, Paul reveals that Jesus revealed himself to his family and to his brothers. And then James eventually becomes a believer at this time and becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. We get that from Acts 15, where they're in the Jerusalem council. They're talking about, man, like all these Gentiles are getting saved, but like, do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to, you know, do uh, all these traditions of the Jewish people? And um, after Paul and Peter speak, James gets up and he writes a letter saying, you know, abstain from idols. You don't need to be circumcised. You know, uh, abstain from sexual immorality and a couple things. And that's how you can become a, a, a believer in Jesus Christ. And so he is the leader of the Jerusalem church at this time, which again is the main, as we would call like the hub of the Christian world at this time, the Jerusalem church, and eventually it broads out from there. So this is like the senior pastor of the early church, in the sense, writing a letter to all the Christians throughout the world who are being persecuted and, on tri- and having trials and, and leaving their family and all this kind of stuff, which is why James starts out in verse 2, and we're just going to look through a couple verses for background. It says, My brethren counted all joy, when you fall into various trials. Again, the, remember the, the um, background of this. Again, they're persecuted. They're being fled. They're being murdered and, and, and martyred. And so James is saying, hey, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And he goes on to say, because it's going to produce patience. And patience is going to have its perfect work so that you could be complete, lacking nothing. He goes on, you know, to talk about rich, like what the rich people are supposed to do and, and uh, the poor people are supposed to live and how temptations and trials do not come from the Lord. Um, They come from the enemy because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor is he himself tempted anyone. So he's laying this foundation. And then I'm going to read in verse 17 to start us off for a little more context. It says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Again, this context is great because he's saying, hey, all the good things. So first he said all the bad things from the world come from the enemy. Temptation and trials and evil, that's the work of Satan. And then he goes on to say every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above, comes down from the father of lights. Again, the opposite of darkness is light with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. There's no secrecy. There's no... Uh, you know, hidden agenda of God. It's very clear. He's come to seek and save. That's what was lost. He's perfect, complete. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, all these things. There's nothing deceitful in him. And then it says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, the word of God, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Again, interesting to use the words first fruits here. The idea of the first fruits of the harvest, the first things plucked, writing to the first Christians— in the first century. Very interesting that he decides to use that language here. And then he says, verse 19, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Again, really quick. He doesn't have like a, a, a flow of, um, 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 uh, what is it, like a theme, thematically go through the, the book. He kind of just jumps from point to point like a proverb would. But he says here, man, we got to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Because the wrath of us as men, as women, does not produce the righteousness of God. And then he says, therefore. Now, whenever you see the word therefore, you want to know why it's therefore. 
right? And so we just did that. We did this whole background. So because of all these things that James just said, because of the context, remember, we've got to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who it's being written to. It says, lay aside, in verse 21 of James 1, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James is telling them, hey, we have all these good gifts. We have all these things from the Lord. Lay aside everything else. Lay aside the evil, the, the wickedness that you have. You know, we don't want any part of that. Growing up, I think I might have shared this analogy before, but uh, as a young kid, for my mom, to, uh, my mom wanted to help me understand uh, sin and feeding sin and temptation and righteousness and feeding that and stuff. And so she used this analogy all the time. She goes, Isaac, in your heart, you have, uh, or in your life, you'll have a white dog and a black dog, right? Okay? And your sin is this dark, disgusting, gross, evil thing from the Lord. And if you feed your sin, this dog's going to be strong and healthy, and it's going to defeat the white dog in your life, and you're going to give into temptation more. But if you feed the white dog and you starve the black dog, your, your life is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and you're going to prosper and grow, and these things are going to happen. That's what James is saying here. Hey, we can't have every good gift and perfect gift from God and wickedness and evil and stuff in our lives as well. We have to get rid of one or the other. And as believers, the Lord's going to help us to get rid of the latter, right? The, the, the evil things, the overflow of wickedness. And then it says this, receive with meekness the implanted word. I love this, love this, this section of the scripture. So we're receiving something. It's a gift from God. We're receiving the word of God. Again, the word of God here, this is one of the, this is the, believed to be the first book of the New Testament, particularly talking about the Old Testament, but applies in the New Testament as well. So all these things, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Save your souls. So we receive something that's going to save us. And this is the message that the Christians brought to the world. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You receive the gospel. It's going to save you. It's going to save your souls. So we got to receive that implanted word. But then it goes on and says this, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Now this is an awesome verse. I believe is convicting for almost every person in this room. Okay? I don't know about you, but this is, for my whole life, is, you know, since I was a little kid, say one thing, do another thing, right? Just, I, I say one thing, and I do another thing. I heard that phrase a thousand times from my father, you know. You say one thing, you do another thing. And James is saying here, we've got to be doers of the word and not hearers only. This is going to break into his point later on when he talks about faith without works is completely dead. And so we're supposed to be um, doing the word and not just hearing it. I know many people, and I'm sure you guys can think of people in your life, who know a lot about the Bible. There's um, theologians, scholars, Bible teachers in universities, and some in pulpits who have a great knowledge, greater than I think I'll ever have, about the scriptures, about textual criticism, about the gospel, about who Jesus was, about the historical context, and all this stuff, and it does nothing to change their life. It does nothing. There are atheist Bible scholars, agnostic Bible scholars, 
seems like weird to say that in the same sentence, but these are people who study the Word, but it doesn't change them, doesn't do anything in their lives. And so as Christians, we need to be careful that we're not doing that. As Christians, you be careful that we're not just hearing, but doing. And then it says this, you deceive yourself. We deceive ourselves when we hear the Word of God and we don't do what it says. And so this is a great analogy James then uses in the next section here. And we'll continue on this point. Verse 23, it says, For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. So it's like this. This is the analogy I like to use. When you wake up in the morning, I don't know about you, but my hair's a little long right now. I need a haircut. My hair's kind of, you know, sticking up all over the place, you know. You might have, like, <clears throat> sleepy eyes, crust around your eyes. You might have, you know, maybe you're sick. you got a runny nose or whatever. Um, you know, you might have, like, lines on your face from how hard you slept last night or whatever. And then you look in the mirror and you go, oh, all right, I'm good. And you go about your day and you go to work and you go to, with your friends and you fellowship. And that's what James is saying. That's what it's like when you look at yourself and you go, no, I know what the word says, but I'm good. And then you move on and do something else with your life. It's that gross analogy. What do we all do? We get up, you know, most of us, we take a shower, right? We clean our face, brush our teeth. Ladies put on makeup if we need to, whatever it is. We get ourselves ready, presentable for the world because we represent ourselves and our family. We don't want to look like complete slobs when we go out and about with other people. And so then, that's what we're supposed to do. The word observe here is like, in the Greek, it's like the idea of um, looking with like careful scrutiny, like to very detailed look into the word. You know, one of the things, I grew up uh, as a pastor's kid, so my dad... I was even born, so pastor's house. And, um, you know, I was taught the word very young. And my tendency was for a very long time, whatever mom and dad say, that's got to be true, right? Which is a good thing to go by. And as I got older, I realized part of my faith was run off of what I didn't even look into. I just believed what someone told me, which is not, not a terrible thing. But as Christians, we're supposed to look, into the, look at the word and look at it and go, what does this mean? Is this true? Is this factual? Can I, if someone debated me on, you know, like they said, oh, the Bible's full of a ton of errors, would you be able to answer that as a Christian and say, no, it's not. Look, let's show me one. Let's go through it. Or, you know, Jesus wasn't a real person. He's just a fake, a figment of our imagination, the big spaghetti monster in the sky. You know, this is who, this is who God is. Are we able as Christians to go, no, man, look at what the Word says. This is what it says, and this is what it does, and history says this, and go on and on and on, and, and use textual criticism and other things to, to study the Word. Um, growing up, I had a Muslim friend. If you don't know anything about Muslims, Muslims are very critical of Christians for a couple of things. One, they say we don't revere our Word. You know, if a Muslim came in here and you saw you put your Bible on the floor on a chair, they'd be appalled. They're like, you know, this, this is something that's holy to them, the holy book, like the Quran, not the Bible, but the Quran. They have it like on a shelf in a case, and they read it, um, you know, three, five times a day, whatever it is, whenever the, 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 depending on the season and the year. But this is, what they, this is what they do. So they see you and they go, that's crazy. They also say the Bible is full of lies, and you can't prove where it comes from, 
and no one can actually prove the Bible is real. It's just fake. You have no copies, da-da-da-da-da, okay? Well, we have over 5,000 Greek New Testament copies from the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which are 99.9% accurate with one another, and then everyone says, oh, 0.1%. Well, okay, that means like this letter was capitalized and this letter was not. This has a comma. This has a period. Those are the differences in the, in the text and in, in the scrolls and stuff. doesn't change the theology or the making of it. The Quran has six copies, and all of them are different from one another. Completely different, completely wrong, you know. And so people come like that, and they come and criticize you and your Christianity and your beliefs. This happens to a lot of young people now who I talk to a lot of who are in going to college. They go to college, and the professors are atheists, anti-God, you know, just like, like just you're going to fail my class, basically, if you, if you don't believe this. I went to a Christian university. I was able to go on a basketball scholarship to a school called Hope International University in Fullerton in Southern California. And I believed I was going to a Christian university. Unfortunately, there are many people in the school who taught the Bible, who taught, um, you know, the history of that stuff, who weren't even believers, you know, who, who had very interesting, strange, strange beliefs. And yet I had to learn how to combat that, not aggressively or angrily, but how to explain my viewpoint. So one of the times in class, I had a teacher, and she didn't believe in the idea of original sin, that you were born with sin, and then you have to be saved to therefore be saved, you know? And so, but you're born good, and you learn sin from other people. And her analogy was, you know, a baby learns that you know, to say mine from other kids and to steal from other kids. Now, she didn't have any kids. I now have a kid. I'm not an expert, but that is completely false. <laughs> you know, he did not need to learn, you know, to run away from us when we call him, to cry when he wants to get something that he wants, you know, um, to do many things. He can't really speak too much yet, but I'm sure one day mine's going to come out and no, and that's whatever it is, you know, you older parents can tell me later. I'm excited. Um, so anyways, I knew this to be true. So I'm texting my dad in class. I had, um, you guys ever, I sound, I'm not that old, but I had a slide phone. Like you slide it up and you type on the little keypad and stuff. This is when all my friends had iPhones. I thought it was so cool. And, uh, so I was texting him, right, like, hey, this is what's going on in class. What are some verses that I can use? And so he starts sending me a bunch of verses, right? So I'm like, listen, um, you know, I just, I don't, like, where do you get that idea? She starts explaining. I was like, well, what do you think about verses like, um, you know, Luke 18, 19? Jesus says, why do you call me good? For there's none good but the Father, you know? And she goes, well, da, 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 and explains whatever it was that she said just to try to justify it. And I go, what do you think about, like, the verse in Romans 3 that says there's no one good, no, not one? Well, Paul is saying there that, you know, and so she goes on and on about this. And I, well, what about Romans 7? You know, Romans 7, if you guys don't know, Romans 7 is just about the, the inner wickedness of the old man, you know, just about the sinful, the things that we want to do, we can't do because we, we can't do them. And the things that we do do, we don't want to do because, you know, and it goes on and on and on. And so anyway, she goes, well... I'm an Old Testament scholar, you know, and I, I don't know much about the New Testament. I'm like, what do you think about the verse in Isaiah that says, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it? And she goes, 
well, I guess we just disagree, you know, and that was it, you know, and so I'm not saying this to show how special I was. I got a bunch of verses from my dad. I didn't know any of this I was talking about, but, but this person didn't have any way to combat what I said because all I did was give her some verses, the word of God. I didn't even explain them. I don't, I don't know what they mean. I just know this is what it says, right? And it was great. A lot of friends after class came up to me, yeah, that makes sense. You know, like it says here in Psalms and da, da. And it was really, really cool. And so with our Christianity, with our life pursuing Christ, we're not able as Christians. There's no such thing as a Christian that stays on the bench, if that makes sense. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to be a, a pastor and a missionary and open or preach every weekend. That's not what it means. But on off the bench working, you know, Lord, what do you need me to do today? For my wife, sometimes it's just, you know, take care of it. Well, some, most of the time, take care of Fletcher, make sure he doesn't die today. That's, that's the goal. You know, cook, cook some food, clean, whatever, whatever it's got to, whatever she's got to do to get done, go grocery shopping, whatever she's got to do. And this is her call, according to the Lord, to fulfill a, a Christian life. And it's different for all of us. You know, Gary and Tammy and uh, Austin and Tina and Aiden, they're in Hungary right now because they felt the Lord called them to go do this thing. Now, we couldn't all go to Hungary for many reasons. Maybe it's medical, maybe it's work, maybe it's, you know, prior obligation, whatever it is, that's not our call. That's, that's what the Lord called them to do. But we are supposed to look and observe with careful scrutiny into the word of God, what do you want in my life? What do you want me to do? Am I okay, Lord, right now with just doing the bare minimum to get by as a Christian? Am I okay with just doing um, the small things here and there just to make me feel good enough that I did something today? Or am I doing, God, what you've called me to do? Am I being obedient to your plan, to your will, to what you have to say? And am I looking in my life and going, man, there's a problem, and then walking away and not even addressing it? Or am I looking into my life and saying, God, there's an issue. God, change me. Use me. Help me. And that's going to happen. Again, I'm only 25. I'm very young. People who are much older than me say it's going to happen for the rest of your life. You're always going to be changing. Always something the Lord's going to work on you until we're in eternity with him we're glorified in perfection with Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're supposed to do. And then it says this in verse 25, back in James chapter 1. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one would be blessed in what he does. If we look into the word of God, the perfect law of liberty. I love that. I love that. One of the main things I hear from people, I don't want to be a Christian because it's so boring. It's so boring, and you're so stuck, and you got to do these traditions. And I'm like, I'm not a Catholic. That's not what I'm, that's not what I'm doing. Sorry. You know, anyways, you know, but, but man, there's so much freedom and joy and amazing things you get to do. I've had the opportunity. I was talking to a dear sister here today about going to Nepal and, and India and Africa and South America and Haiti. And I grew up two hours from Mexico. We get to Mexico all the time, seeing these amazing places, having great friendships, great fellowship, amazing times of worship and different stuff like that. And man, it's been so joyful. I talk to my dad about it all the time because again, I don't have like um, my BC days, you know, like I didn't ever do drugs or drink or, you know, sleep around with a bunch of ladies before I got married. But I know people who did, you know, and who became Christians. And I remember them talking about like, 
my dad was one of them. He was, <clears throat> he was a drug dealer and all this kind of stuff. And he talks about it all the time. When he got saved, that's what he thought. He's like, I just don't want to be bored. It just sounds so boring. Because the Christianity he grew up in with his family just sounded so boring. And the Lord showed him, man, this is what I'm really about. I'm really about, you know, just the gospel and the Holy Spirit coming in you and filling you and using you and you seeing amazing things happen. And, uh, you know, he's never been bored since. And so, you know, Christianity, the Bible is the perfect law of liberty. See, sin binds us. Grace frees us. Grace frees us to do the things that the Lord wants us to do, to be able to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And, it, and, it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. Again, like someone who hears something and does something completely different. Pray for me. This is one of my weaknesses with my wife. I am very forgetful. Not purposely, but it's not an excuse. I'm very forgetful for many things I need to do. And my wife is one of those people who's like, well, you ain't going to do it. I'm just going to do it. And she gets it done. And then I feel bad because I forgot. It's just, oh, you know, it's my thing. I'm so forgetful about, like, very <laughs> things I should not be forgetful about. But this is not, not how we're supposed to be when it comes to the Word. We hear the Word. We hear what it says. It's got to change us. It's got to change our lives. You know, one of the worst sayings in Christianity, um, I think, for Christians is when people say, oh, you know, that's just the way I am. Or, you know, that's just the way she is. Whatever it is. That's just the way he is. Whatever it may be. Man, I pray for my life. I never come to a point where I say, man, that's just who I am. Deal with it, you know. I pray that I'm, I'm someone, and I pray for our church as well, that we're people who get changed by the word, who hear it, and, and change what's going on in our lives, so that we don't struggle with the same things for decades and decades and decades without wanting to see a change or wanting to see God work in our lives, but that he would use it in our lives for his glory. It says this, if you're a doer of the work and not forgetful, you'll be blessed in what he does. Uh, on the overhead, we have a verse in Matthew chapter 7. I think Jesus places this perfectly. This is right at the end on the Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 24 of chapter 7, he says, Therefore, whoever hears these things, sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descends, and the floods came, and the winds blew and it beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. I see this so many times as a, as a pastor's son. A lot of my dad's uh, pastoral friends or people in ministry or missionaries they have like secret sins for many years. And when it comes to light, man, it destroys their family, ruins it, ruins their, their walk with God. They fall away. They can never see their kids again. They, their, their wife is, of course, so hurt or their husband is so hurt, whatever it may be, because they have a foundation on sand. They made a God in their own image and I can get away with doing this or I can do this and still be a believer and still follow Jesus. But then... When the storm comes, when things go down, when it gets real, you're wiped away and you're destroyed. So Jesus is saying after this amazing section again, you know, um, speaking of like treasures in heaven, and blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are the meek, blessed are the, the persecuted. And if you look at someone with hate, you committed murder in your heart. And if you look at someone with lust, you committed adultery. All this stuff he goes on to lay down and fulfill the law and many other things he says, if you hear these things, 
and don't do them, you're foolish and your fall will be great. Man, I don't want to be that. On the other hand, if we do these things and we're found on the rock, we will be wise and strong and settled. You know, as a, as a young man uh, who I, I teach and, and, and lead young adults group and as a husband and, and a father now, I pray all the time, Lord, and I, I, my prayers are, are very bold. I try to be like, you know, give me everything you got, Lord. I'm like, Lord, make me as wise as Solomon, you know. I don't know if that will happen one day. That would be great. Not there yet. We'll see. But I pray, I pray, Lord, Lord, make me as wise as Solomon. You know, make me as, 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 as bold as Paul the Apostle on the street corner. Make me as bold as Stephen when he's before the council. Make me as, as, as um, gifted or, or skilled in, in, in teaching as um, Apollos or who, whatever it may be. Lord, help me to be all that you want me to be. I don't want to be bound by my own flesh and stupidity and, and wickedness. I want to be... I want to be bound by Jesus Christ. I want to be bound by the grace of God, by the things that he's done in my life to completely change me. And I want that to be what you use, Lord, for the gospel. For God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And that has been so true in my life and in, and in many others. Then it goes on in verse 26. It says, if anyone among you, and this is back in James chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Now, you have to remember in the New Testament, whenever the word religion is used, no bueno, not good, okay? This is not a good thing. It's used as a negative. When Jesus talks about the religious rulers at the time, negative. In the book of Acts, they talk about religious rulers and religious people at the time, negative. Always people persecuting Christians and disobeying God. And so many times people ask me, dude, you're like super religious because you don't like cuss and you read your Bible. I'm like, okay, well, those standards are very low, but thank you. But I always say I'm actually not religious. I don't have a tradition. I'll go to church on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. I don't care what day I go to church. You know, I don't care what time of the day I read my Bible. I'll read it seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever time I want to read it, I'm going to read it because I have freedom in Christ to do that. You know, I don't have to pray this many times a day. I don't have to, you know, I have to make sure I share the gospel 20 times a day or else I'm condemned. You know, I don't have to do that. I have freedom and ability in Christ, and I, and I just want to obey him. So I say, no, I, I'm not religious. I have a relationship. I have a relationship with God, just like I have a relationship with my wife. I want to know God better. I want to read his word. I want to do what he tells me to do. I want to serve him, and I want to be obedient to what he says. <coughs> Excuse me. And then, it goes on, if you think you're religious and you do not bridle your tongue, you deceive your own heart. Again, if you are swift to speak, swift to wrath, slow to hear, you don't bridle your tongue, you're going to deceive your own heart. Later on, and I encourage you guys, if you want to later, to read James chapter 3, it talks about bridling the tongue. Now, the bridle is used, I don't know how many of you guys grew around, up around horses, but it says a bridle on a horse, it's like... Um, it's like a bit they put in a horse's mouth. It's like a metal piece, maybe this big. It could control a huge horse, right? So I grew up, my grandpa was a cowboy. He broke horses for a living. That was his job um, before I was even born, but he had horses later on and stuff. 
And so I, I remember, little kid, like, you're telling me with this two-inch, three-inch piece of metal, I put it in this horse's mouth, I have reins attached to it, I can control a horse. That's pretty sweet. I'm like seven, you know, I'm like way like 70 pounds, and this is like a 500-pound animal, you know, whatever it is. Like, that's pretty sweet. But that's what it's talking about, bridling our tongue. You know, it uses the analogy about rudders on ships. The rudder compared to a ship. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen these, like, aircraft vessels. We just watched uh, Top Gun the other day, my wife and I. Um, really cool movie. Um, but, like, these huge aircraft carriers, they have these little rudders on, on the back. But they control this massive ship. Just like our tongue is really tiny, but it can get us in a lot of trouble. You know? But it can also keep us from trouble if we bridle our tongue. So, if you could declare yourself religious but can't control what you say, James is saying, your, your religion is useless. And then he goes on to say this. One of the only times in the Bible that religion is used for good. It says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. You know, so true. You know, I think of uh, in Acts chapter 6, the, um, um, the Jewish Christians were complaining that, hey, we're not getting any care from um, the, 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 the church, our widows and our children and stuff. We need more help. And so Peter and the apostles, they get together. They say, it's not good for us to leave the teaching of the word to serve tables. It's important for us to, to teach the word. Let us ordain some men to take care of these, these people and their problems. It's one of the first things, first big decisions in the church. They named some men. One of them was Stephen, who ended up being martyred, right? This amazing man of God. But this is a part of our church, is to visit those who have orphaned or widowed and need help, you know? And so that's what religion is, one of the main things religion is about. And then it finishes with this, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. <clears throat> you know, I, I remember, again, an analogy. The idea that um, when I was a kid, my mom would open a blank coloring book or whatever, or blank piece of paper. You know, this is what Jesus did. He washed you white as snow. The problem is, is he washes us white as snow, and we sin, and we have issues, and we pray for repentance, and he washes us again, you know. And we pray, and he washes us, and he cleanses us forever and all eternity, and it's awesome. So keep yourself unspotted from the world. Think of men in Scripture. Think of people like Lot, Abraham's brother, who was a guy who seemed to be used by God. But then he lived in this wicked and perverse city, you know. It says that two angels came to him, and the men of the city wanted to know them carnally. So they commanded that Lot would use them. And Lot says, I have a solution. Got it, guys. I have two virgin daughters. Why don't you take them instead? You know, like, what? Like, you're supposed to be a man of God. Why would you ever think of something like that? Someone who was unspotted later on, you know. This is the Bible, guys. Sorry. Later on. His two daughters decide, we don't have a husband, so let's get our dad drunk, sleep with him, and then we'll have kids, you know? Crazy, crazy. This guy who grew up around Abraham, the father of, you know, Israel, the father of the nation, just couldn't keep himself unspotted from the world. I think of people like David. You know, David, who at times just decided, I'm just going to give into my flesh and give my into the world, and he committed adultery and then committed murder, and then his... Baby died because of it. Many, many people, we can go on and on. And I thank the Bible. I thank God for writing down all the flaws of these people, right? 
Because then we can go and tell people, hey, you don't need to be perfect. You don't have to have everything figured out. Look at what these guys did. The, the, the thing is, at the end of the day, what are you going to do? Are you going to repent? Are you going to turn from the Lord? I mean, David, again, was called a man after God's own heart. What? That's not the guy I would pick. You know, he was a terrible father. Again, committed murder, adultery, fled his nation. He did all these things, yet he was a man after God's own heart because he, in his repentance, in Psalm 51, he talks about, man, just like, Lord, you don't even desire sacrifice. A broken and contrite heart, Lord, is what you want, and, and, and this is what you need. People like Peter, love Peter. Again, goes from, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, only heaven and earth have revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven revealed that to you, Jesus said. And then Jesus says something, and Peter pulls aside, Jesus, I don't know if we should be doing that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. In the next passage, just like that. It makes me feel so much better about my life. <laughs> you know, but people like that, God used. God used to change the world. God used to, to, um, to be obedient to him as an example for us not to do those things. Now, I'm, I'm happy to say that I struggled a lot, my, a lot in my life, right? Sinner, wicked. I got saved at 15. But I was so blessed growing up with amazing men and women around me to tell me, dude, all this stuff that we did that your friends think are really great and cool, it was nothing. It ruined our lives. I was never in the world tempted by drugs or alcohol, even as an unbeliever because of the way it was introduced to me. All of my family members who did those things we're losers and, you know, if they're getting drunk every night and doing all this kind of stuff, like it was just not something that was appealing to me. And I praise God for that. But, um, you know, I was, I was blessed to keep myself in that area unspotted from the world. And that's what we have a job to do as well. Not only are we ourselves called to be unspotted from the world, to keep ourselves away from the world, that Jesus says that we're going to be in the world, but not of it. He, doesn't, he wants to remove us. He wants, we want to be taken out. One day we will. Pray it happens soon. He comes back. We're done. That's it. But as, we ter as he tarries, as we wait, we're here to be unspotted from the world and then to be an example to others. And I've realized that more and more as I become a father, right? I'm an example to my son. He follows the things I do and the things I, I want to do. You know, we were, uh, his, one of his favorite foods is uh, uh, noodles. He likes to eat like pasta noodles and stuff. So I was teaching him how to slurp his noodles. It's his favorite thing in the world now. He just picks them up and he... And then a couple times, he'll go down the wrong pipe and he'll pull it out, you know, and then do it again, you know, and that's his thing. But he's following our, 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 what we do and the things we do. I go outside and play basketball. He just goes, ball, 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 ball. You know my son, he'll call you ball, call the chair ball, call the TV ball. Ball is everything. He loves ball, you know. But just like that, I want to be like that I want to soak in the God, the Word of God, other people's wisdom, like my son does with other little things like that. That's why we're called to be have childlike faith. And so, don't just be hearers of the Word. Don't come here on Sundays every week. Same message, you know. I pray you're encouraged. I pray you're you're blessed. But let's apply it as our as Christians. Let's be an example to other believers. Let's be an example in our home, um, with our friends, in our towns, in our lives, in our families. But let's be doers of the word. Do the things God calls us to do. It may look different for all of us, but he calls us to be one thing 
that we finish with here, to be unspotted from the world and to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we um, come before you now, God, and uh, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, I pray that what you wanted to say was clear. And Lord, I thank you for passages like that. Lord, convict us where we need conviction. Lord, I'm thankful that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. You're not here, you didn't write these things to condemn us as believers, but to encourage us, to sway us away from the things that aren't going to bring glory to yourself and are going to be detrimental in our lives. So Lord, I just ask that you'd um, help us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. That we'd listen to what we read in our devos and our time in church and wherever else other Bible studies we may go to, that we'd listen to those things and we'd apply it to our life. Lord, help us where we're weak. I think of that man who told Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, help us where we're unbelieving. Help us where we're weak. God, I thank you that you choose, like we said, to use foolish people. We also choose to use the weak people, the debased people, the, the things that are not to bring the things that are. And God, we're just in, humbled and honored to be servants of you and to know you. Thank you for your gospel, the truth that it is. Just bless our time today in Jesus' name. Amen.